Welcome to Kick the Dogma. I'm your host, John Emmerich. We're back to ESG investing today. On a prior episode, we talked to Larry Swedrow and Sam Adams about their book, The Essential Guide to Sustainable Investing. And today we have a more European take. The book is The ESG Investing Handbook, Insights and Developments in Environmental, Social and Governance Investment. It's edited by Becky O'Connor. She's also a contributor. It's a great book and we had a great discussion and I hope you enjoy it. Here's Becky. Welcome, Becky. Thanks. Nice to be here. So, Becky, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, uh, Interactive Investor, which was a new firm to me, and, and what led you to eventually guide this book through to publication as its editor. So my current role for Interactive Investor, which is a, a, the second biggest retail investment platform in the UK, is head of pensions and savings. So I cover issues that are relevant to people who are trying to put money aside for the very long term, for their future um, and for their families, um, whether that's in pensions or other savings and investment vehicles. And um, I, um, in addition to that, have for a long time been covering the sustainable investment market um, in uh, both PR roles and editorial roles um, writing about sustainable investment for a consumer audience um, and probably for the last decade or so actually um, and that, that's sort of starting from the time when it really wasn't that much of a thing um, ethical investment's been around for a long time um, the idea of ESG and sustainable investing and positive impact investing which we'll come on to um, ha- haven't been around for as long, but I've been covering it pretty much from the beginning um, for national newspapers um, and magazines um, as people's interest in this area has grown, really. And over time, the connection between investing for your own personal benefit and for your pension for the long term and to deliver a profit has coincided more and more with sustainability concerns. And it's become more mainstream. And my uh, role at Interactive is not only to tell people how to do the right thing for their retirement savings, but also how to do that in a way that, uh, or potentially do that in a way, if they're interested in doing it in a way that's also sustainable. Um, I So I've been covering the area mainly from a consumer focus, um, but um, because of the nature of the job, it also involves talking to lots of asset managers. I'm also co-founder of a website called Good With Money, which is a uh, a website that's personal finance based but focused on all the sustainable things you can do um, with your personal finances. Um, I co-founded that in 2015 um, and it's going strong. So this this book is really bringing together all of my experience and conversations and contacts with that world um, and trying to bring it to a to a lay but curious audience. And your contributors are fantastic. I found them to be uh, candid and practical, not just advocates. And I think readers will really appreciate that. I think that comes through. Let's try to clear up some of the confusion about what ESG is and isn't. And we'll dig into each of them in a minute. But let's get rid of some other terms. And I've been around this space for a long time, but even I learned a few. The, the, the most obvious one, the exclusions, is kind of the oldest form of socially responsible investing, I think, where Depending on your view, you're you just don't want to participate in sin stocks, um, and now maybe you want to get rid of fossil fuel companies in your portfolio. Uh, what is the stewardship stewardship category that w- that was new to me? So stewardship has also been around for a long time, and that's really a sort of more traditional approach um, to positive impact or sustainable investing, which is um, focused on the preservation. Of assets and it's kind of um, sustainable, but it, it's this idea of looking after nature, looking after the planet, and looking after society for the future. So it has uh, with it the sort of idea of legacy and leaving behind, and what you're leaving behind as a result of what you're investing in. So it's very similar, and as I go into in the book, it's very similar um, to sustainable, but with just slightly different connotations. And some people prefer the word. And it may, you know, simply just come down to that when you're a fund manager choosing a name for your fund and choosing what best describes your approach. It may just literally be, I think that word sounds a bit more like what we're trying to achieve. Yeah, there's a gentleman with an asset uh, wealth management firm here in town, and it's uh, stewardship capital. You know, so it tries to 
it seems to be all inclusive, really, uh, just thinking about what your money's doing and or, or not doing. The, the other one was uh, CSR, corporate social responsibility. I, I love the comparison to uh, Catholic indulgences. I just finished a book on Martin Luther. It kind of reminds me a little bit of of carbon credits, which don't come up a lot in the book. But is that a is that a way to think about what that is? I'm, I'm buying my way out of changing my behavior. I do think that's a fair comparison, although I always like to give the benefit of the doubt. And I think there's a lot of good people working in um, corporate social responsibility. And I included that in the book, not because it's an investment style that deserves to be included in an ESG investing handbook, but because it does often get confused with ESG. And it's it's completely different. It's kind of like the the social impact charity function of a business that operates independently of the business. And as several of the contributors talk about in the book, when you're trying to embed ESG into a company um, so that it becomes investable to investors who only want to invest in good ESG quality companies, um, that goes across the whole company. But CSR is a department which does a lot, can do a lot of good and companies can put a lot of money into CSR, but it has absolutely nothing to do with the production of their service or product, um, the culture of the business, the way they do things necessarily. You can have a bad business that has really good CSR. So yes, I think your analogy is fair and it's just worth differentiating because I think sometimes, particularly with social impact and the social impact that a company has in the past certainly companies appointed people to their csr effort and these days that isn't good enough really like it, obviously it's, it's sort of hygiene like you have to have good csr but you also have to have social impact embedded throughout the organization if you want to have really good credentials for investors who are, are looking to invest with social purpose yeah and that's perfect because that's, that's why we're Going through these other terms first, it's a challenge to understand and explain to people what the E, the S, and the G are, and then you have all these other terms around it that you didn't ask for, but are have all, their own purpose and maybe even predated ESG. ESG is kind of new in the vernacular, but it has just taken over to kind of represent the industry. W- one more, SDGs, the UN Sustainable Development Goals. I sometimes wonder if SDGs have any cut through with anybody who isn't in the investment industry because it it's talked about a lot um and, and also I suppose environmental policy um and people who work for the UN but I think with the general public the SDGs don't really mean a huge amount I find them a really useful framework there are for, for those that don't know for whom this is you know they've it's bypassed them um they are 17 goals life without hunger life without poverty life below the sea, life on land, to name four of them. Um, there are many, and they cover several different environmental goals um, and social goals. And they're a really useful, they're a useful set of goals in that they help define what sustainability really is. And it, they do demonstrate that sustainability is is not just environmental, it's social too. It's about people on the planet. The UN devised them um, a few years ago and they have become a useful way for some asset managers and to a lesser extent ratings agencies to rate investments or to define what an investment does that is good. Um, the, The problem with it is is often you have investments that are very good at meeting one goal, say renewable energy, but don't meet any of the other goals then what do we do with that? Do we say that is a sustainable investment because it meets one goal really clearly? Or do we say it isn't because it doesn't cover all 17 goals? And what was, what was really interesting, which is in the book, is um, a graph from a company called Ethical Screening. And it um, helpfully demonstrates that uh, it's really, really difficult for any investment product to meet all of the UN Sustainable Development Goals if not impossible, because there just aren't the just aren't the companies around or the activities around that could possibly meet um, all of the goals. Um, the ones in particular that are challenging for companies are around biodiversity. So life on land, life in the sea, 
it's, it's very hard to find profitable activities that also meet the biodiversity focus UN sustainable development goals and um, so if a fund um, is suggesting that it, it is sustainable and it meets the UN sustainable development goals according to ethical screening that is actually a bit of a red flag because it's very hard for an investment to do that honestly authentically anybody would only ever be claiming to meet a few of them at any one time fascinating so now let's get into what ESG is and and isn't as the confusion around it was a big part of the economist front page story that just came out about ESG you've just been through editing and writing this book and sometimes it's hard when you're working in the space already as you have been to understand other people's confusion but we're trying to make this uh, accessible broadly what have you learned about where and why folks are uh, getting confused about ESG I've learned um, that at this point in time, um, actually ESG should be a bit confusing because it's still really finding itself. It's not a finished product. It, you know, in, in the people, the, from the people that I've talked to, in particular, um, Ashley Hamilton Claxton um, at Royal London Asset Management um, wrote a great LinkedIn post, which I referred to in the book about the messiness of ESG and how you know, ratings and everything are fundamentally, in a way, doomed to failure at the moment, because we don't have really clear cut official global standards for what ESG is and isn't. And also, we can't have that, because it's an evolving field. And the nature of technology, and the technologies that are, you know, renewable technologies, and everything that we have at our disposal as a global society, to help reduce carbon emissions, to help reduce waste and pollution is evolving all the time so those standards are changing all the time so I think the first thing I would like to say really is that in a way we need to get rid of this idea that there is one golden clear-cut definition of what ESG is out there just out of reach if only we could just agree on it because I don't think there is. I think that's kind of unrealistic. Having said that, it is still incredibly helpful. And the discussion around the different terms, I think, should be viewed rather than being obfuscating and confusing as helpful, because in that tension between the terms, you know, hopefully we get better and we get more demanding and we want more from our investments. And that, that's what we need to see, the progress rather than the finished product at this stage. So... In terms of the actual confusions between the terms, I think one of the things that's happened is ESG has come to mean something to the industry, which it, it wasn't intended to originally to mean. So from the very beginning, when the term was first coined, it was environmental, it was, it was the incorporation of environmental, social and governance factors into the investment decision making process with the goal of improving environmental, social and governance standards. But I think over time, as more strategies have evolved, particularly positive impact, which is where you focus only on investing in things that produce solutions to the world's problems rather than incorporating them as considerations. As that has evolved, ESG sort of become a bit dirtier and a bit more, uh, I don't know, a lot of people have sort of frowned down upon it as an exercise because it only means that companies have to consider rather than embed or set targets. And I think that that, that has therefore become sort of a light version of what positive impact could be. And people have wanted to sort of disown ESG a bit in the industry, and um, partly because of greenwash as well. So, uh, you know, as a term, it's bandied around. It's very all encompassing. And so perhaps that means that some asset managers use it when they shouldn't. And that's contributed to greenwash. And then that means that those who don't want to be associated with greenwash pull away from ESG. So it's, there's been become quite a lot of infighting over terms and who's doing what and and I think a lot of it is just inference and people inferring different things from it and I think in the industry those inferences around ESG can now be quite negative whereas perhaps that's not the case for a more consumer audience yet who simply 
don't really know what it is yet because it's just an acronym that takes quite a lot of explaining. I think, you know, there's tensions as well because when people are writing about it, journalists can't afford the space to every single time they talk about this field, explain exactly what environmental, social and governance means, what, how it's different to sustainable for some fund managers, but not others, how it's different to positive impact, how it's different to ethical. There just isn't the space. So we do have to accept that we also need a byword for this whole field. And usually that byword is sustainable. That's the one that people tend to use the most. And that's fair enough because we haven't got space and time to explain all these things all day to everyone. But I think there are some in the industry who feel frustrated by that too. And every time they see the word sustainable, they feel it's slightly being misused because it's being used as a catch-all when it shouldn't be. So um, that's where I think we are. Um, I I don't think, I I, I do explain in the book um, as clearly as anyone possibly can what the differences are between all the terms. But equally, I do think it's important to acknowledge where there is quite a lot of overlap between them, how it it can mean different things to different people. And so uh, and also that we are making progress and it's evolving and changing all the time. So I think in that wider context, given that wider perspective, we as individuals need to relax a bit about the terminology. We do, however, need to leave up to regulators to decide on very clear frameworks and that's what they're doing. So in the meantime, we sit, we watch, we wait. We don't accuse too many people of greenwash unless it's very, very clear that that's what they're doing. Right. And I think just the fact that the discussions are happening, that it's facilitating discussion, even when there are folks like The Economist that are complaining, the discussion is a good thing. It moves you in a certain direction. Uh, but unfortunately, in the, in the meantime, there are opportunists who will have co-opted the term for profit. And we'll get into greenwashing in a little bit. You just mentioned something about the overlap between E and the S and the G. Is there much? I thought that was always part of the confusion for me is it was treated as this ubiquitous category when they almost seemed mutually exclusive. In reading this book, I, I did pick up something I had missed before, which was in the, from the governance perspective, there is overlap in that that governance, governance is responsible for driving policy, environmental policy and social policy. But uh, what is what is the extent of the overlap and the fact that they're, they, they might be very mutually exclusive due to this, the, the messaging, if you will? I think it's one area we could talk about clear overlaps is where we have traditional ethical investing, which, as you say, is screening out activities that are generally considered harmful, um, more harm, do more harm than good. So tobacco, arms manufacture that kind of thing. Now, fossil fuels is interesting because to some people from an ethical viewpoint now, an ethical portfolio should exclude fossil fuels. They do more harm than good. Therefore, they should be excluded and they shouldn't be in ethical portfolios. Now, clearly with um, an ESG labelled fund, your expectation would be that there aren't fossil fuels in there, particularly if it has an environmental, particular environmental focus, because Clearly, um, from an environmental point of view, they do more harm than good. Socially, there are arguments for for and against fossil fuels, but from an environmental point of view, certainly more harm than good. So you may, as as an investor coming to this area for the first time, expect both an ESG fund to not invest in fossil fuels and an ethical fund to not invest in fossil fuels. And yet, technically could still find it find them in both depending on the ethics being used or the ESG degree used by that particular fund manager because with some ESG funds as you know you can you can still see best in class fossil fuels firms in there because they are investing a higher proportion of renew in a higher proportion of renewable energy compared to their peers for instance so i think there's overlap there there's overlap between positive impact in ESG because really I mean if we accept that ESG is a very broad term and it was originally intended to be very broad and it may have come to mean something else positive impact is a branch of ESG it may be a branch that focuses more on 
positive environmental impact only or positive social impact only. Governance is a bit different because that's not about outcomes. It's more about methods. So there is naturally overlap. You could, a positive impact fund could be described as an ESG fund. It doesn't want to be because it's more special and focused than ESG funds are generally. But it could be. It, it, it could be. Although um, many positive impact funds now do have more of an environmental positive impact focus So perhaps might fall down slightly on the social side of things. Um, And actually increasingly now you're seeing um, asset managers that have a a mandate on environmental positive impact asked to also report on their social impact because increasingly um, it's viewed that you can't consider all these things in isolation. Even if your focus is on one thing, you have to still report on the other aspects too. And that's whether you're ESG or positive impact or ethical. That's across the board. So, we, I mean, we will start to see, I think, as, as reporting improves, we'll see more clearly where those overlaps are between funds with different labels, but then actually under the bonnet, they may have quite similar styles, maybe quite similar underlying investments, in fact. The Economist article points out that the, the real existential crisis right now is climate, so the E should stand for emissions, which I thought was pretty witty, but it's uh, it's very hard to execute on. I'm going to ask an investing question now, and also it's just some clarification on, again, this idea of exclusion versus investing for impact. You know, emissions is, it's hard, but it's simple, right? It's electrification of everything from cars to appliances. It's generating power sustainably to run those products and reorganizing the grid to get the power from where the wind blows and the sun shines to where the power is used. And an almost equivalent investment in battery storage. Have you come across many other investment fields for the environmental part, but general, but specifically for emissions? That big piece of the of the climate crisis. What what are folks doing out there that's that are that's interesting? Besides emissions, I mean, the Economist is right. Emissions really does need to be the focus. That's the number one big environmental existential crisis for sure. Um, but then there are others creeping up fast behind the priority list. Um, There are other priorities. And water use is another area that environmentally focused investment funds may uh, look at besides emissions. I think it's quite hard for them to avoid emissions. But water is a a really big deal. Uh, Water shortages um, in particular, uh, water use, waste, waste disposal, waste treatment, is part of that and may form part of an environmentally focused investment product. Then there is this issue of biodiversity, which is increasingly being considered, but then I haven't seen any clear examples of of it being um, investable. I think it's still really early days for investments that meet biodiversity challenges. And and by that, I mean, um, you know, uh, loss of species, loss of habitats, also very critical you know if we're thinking about ecosystems and um, emissions of course it's all it all links together and and really underpinning all of them is this is this problem of emissions raising raising the temperature of the planet so that does have to be number one but there are other challenges and other activities that companies can be involved in that also legitimately meet environmental aims i think you know that there's there is a part of the book that refers to some of the difficulty with things like electric vehicle production which is clearly important to reduce emissions from vehicles but then when you look at the production of evs and the mining of the rare earth minerals and lithium and so forth that's involved in the production of the batteries then that becomes complicated too, because we've got another natural resource issue coming down the line there. So it really does have to be this balancing act of what's the priority now, then what can we do about the next tier of problem that we're creating for the earth once we've got this big one under control? That's assuming we ever get that big one under control. You are also increasingly seeing people talking about climate change adaptation, and so we, we look at mitigation. That's the, the main way of dealing with emissions is actually reducing emissions. We're mitigating climate change damage. And then the other strategy is adaptation, which is we go, OK, we know we're on course to fail at meeting the Paris climate targets. 
what are we going to do to help ourselves here? And so generally speaking, we scientists are looking and they're thinking, okay, well, we can still do stuff on mitigation, but also we need to acknowledge that the crisis is here already. We can see it around us. We need to adapt. Um, so you may see some funds um, that are focused on ad- adaptation strategies, but you wouldn't you wouldn't see them probably claiming to be environmentally focused funds. Really, that is about mitigation first and foremost. Yeah, and there, there are some industries that seem to stand out to be particularly troublesome across the board: pollution and emissions, agriculture, steel, and cement being among them. And I, there's probably opportunity there. But you also touched on something as, as far as emissions are concerned. And that's, as Bruce Davis says in your book, regulation, regulation, regulation. If as long as companies and countries allow the externalization of costs, it's just really tough to manage. And, and politicians have no stomach for a carbon tax. We've already talked about cap and trade. It, it's, to me, that's one of the biggest challenges. You know, you're in London, I'm in the Western United States. The, the book has a somewhat of a UK-centric feel and, and Europe more broadly. Is there a country or countries out there that have a, now this is getting away from the investing a little bit, but a blueprint to emulate that force companies to internalize pollution and waste without hurting economic growth? Because I think if it started with that, the, the investment opportunities would explode because now you need to figure out a way to operate as a for-profit company, if that's what you do, while meeting some timeline for regulatory oversight. But I don't know, sitting here in my perch outside of Denver, uh, who we should be looking to, but I'll let you tell me if there is something or someone out there. So I didn't come across any single country that appears to have got it right. Everybody has got some kind of conflicts. Everybody is focusing you know, more on one thing than another, perhaps at the moment. But I, across the um, across Europe, there, there have been some, some really good progress from regulators on setting a framework. And actually, I, I have to say, um, I mean, we're going through a, a strange time politically in the UK at the moment, but we do have a sustainable finance roadmap from the government, which sets out a very clear path, which um, involves the Financial Conduct Authority, which is the main regulator in the UK, um, and an organisation called the Green Finance Institute, which is really tasked with working out exactly how to incorporate all ESG considerations into every part of the financial services industry. So that's not just what the investment industry is doing, but also what lenders and banks are doing. Um, So it goes right across from mortgage availability, uh, green mortgages, through to green investments in your ISA. I think having read through that sustainable finance roadmap, that is really, really promising. The thing is, we're still waiting for the implementation of a lot of the guidance and the roadmap itself. So um, as a plan, it, it, it looks really good to me. But whether or not the regulators can get their heads around it enough to um, set up the legislation and then and then act where they see wrongdoing is another thing. And I think, you know, we've seen some greenwash cases uh, come through in Italy uh, and in the US. We haven't had any high profile greenwash mis-selling claims or scandals in the UK yet. But I think that would be a sign that a country not only knows where it needs to go, but is also prepared to actually do what needs to be done and enforce that regulation too. So I think Europe is really good. I know that there have been further changes in the US just in the in the last couple of weeks with regards to climate change legislation. And I think the UK is is one to watch. Let's talk more now about greenwashing since it came up. This this is a big one. The SEC in the United States is is starting to crack down on at least the mutual funds targeting retail investors that are making ESG claims, but studies have shown the the claims have no teeth. In fact, some of them are actually worse than average. There have been a couple cases in Europe, but talk to people about what it is. And if you can differentiate, you know, we talk very highly uh, at a high level about investing uh, or disclosures involving, say, environmental regulations. And I'm, I'm trying to understand 
how much of it is like company specific, like these companies must do this, these companies must disclose this versus a an investment vehicle, a fund that uh, is advertising, hey, we are uh, an ESG fund. And the greenwashing is particularly pernicious because not only is it fraudulent, but then there's a carryover effect where investors tend to be turned off from the whole space when they read those articles about the opportunists who are misrepresenting themselves. But uh, I know what it is, so I have to be careful here. Listeners might not, you know, we're just using the term. Please now talk about uh, greenwashing as as broadly and specifically uh, as you'd like. So greenwash is really just overstating overstating what a company does um, to help the planet. How much uh, you know? How much they are actually um, investing in renewable energy, and it's done in subtle ways. So, well, subtle and less subtle ways. Uh, I mean, it it could be um, an oil company's corporate website being literally covered in green in pictures of wind turbines and solar panels um, is a is a is a marketing greenwash. Whether that counts as mis-selling is is another thing. I mean, they do many of them do invest lots of money in renewable energy. So in that sense, it's not it's not misleading because they do invest in it, but as a proportion of what they do overall, it is misleading um, because that's not where most of the oil rigs don't look as pretty as wind turbines in fields, and they certainly don't do much for the brand. Um, so there's the marketing, there's the imagery used in marketing, which is greenwash. And then there's the presentation of facts in annual reports which is is harder to greenwash because you know you're you're upheld to certain standards of reporting which is where the governance comes in if you've got really good governance that should to an extent limit greenwash and um, because reporting standards will be followed but really it's a marketing exercise to make a, a company's activities sound better and nicer for the planet than they really are and it 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 applies to companies it it applies to asset managers applies to any business in the investment chain um or not even in the investment chain i mean it applies in in the consumer sphere as well so if a company that i buy my trainers from says that you know it's it's completely eco um and vegan and it's not then that that would annoy me as a consumer too regardless of whether or not I invest in that company so I think it's really really pernicious and you know we all we all want to feel good about ourselves and we all want to feel good about our impact on the planet and, and like we're part of the solution rather than the problem and that in a way can make us receive greenwash almost lazily because we you know it it supports our worldview and our view of ourselves if we see nice pictures everywhere of wind turbines and solar panels and we think oh great you know we're doing the right thing we're you know I'm gonna I'm gonna buy my stuff from this company because they're doing the right thing or at least they say they are and you know who am I to question that so I think it's pernicious because it's it's hard for us all to challenge but we absolutely must because if we are if we don't then temperatures will continue to rise because all the stuff is just going to stay as it was emissions will continue to rise and the planet will keep heating up so greenwash and squashing it is really really important it might not seem like an obvious thing to prioritize in the battle to save the planet but it is uh, because it's telling us things are more comfortable than they really are and yeah it's it's it, it really is very clever marketing and as somebody who is in PR and does a lot of communicating I understand the the, the temptation to sort of you know focus on the positive messaging of what a company is doing and use that to attract people's attention but it, you you really can't do the, the implications of doing that with this in particular are too serious so that's why it's very important for regulators to step step on it and to do so very very visibly and you know I I I what I don't want to happen though is that companies then get very nervous and so worried about the threat of being done for greenwashing that they don't communicate the good things that they are doing. I think it is really important 
if we are being transparent and trying to make choices and trying to do make a positive difference that we do see as well the good things that companies are really doing and that they're not scared to tell us it's the way they tell us that needs to change in some cases so it just it's a straight communication of fact we are investing this in this this is the impact on emissions that we need not all the lovely trees and wind turbine images and little animated videos on company websites that make us feel good yeah transparency is is uncomfortable at times but it it serves everybody pretty well you you introduced the idea of governance and as as you wrote in the book it may be the slipperiest of all and it's very interesting to read the story about Larry Fink of BlackRock who is in the news as the largest shareholder in the world of everything is being the largest index fund holder and being very concerned about climate change but not so much on the governance side when he when you look at the shareholder votes what what makes good governance for a company i used to think it because i sit on a couple boards it was just about diversity of the board but there's so much more uh, to it could you before we get into the economy can you talk a little bit about what makes good governance in publicly traded companies i am just very quickly going to refer to the um, good governance definition in the governance section of the book uh, because it does it perfectly there is an institute called the good, the good governance institute in the uk i describe governance in the book by the way as the glue that holds everything else together you can't really achieve environmental or social impact without governance it's so important so according to the good governance institute good governance adds value it is lean transparent and ethical focused on tackling operational challenges in ways that complement the big picture vision. It always seeks the best outcomes for stakeholders and is never content with merely staying out of trouble. The best boards continually question their own governance. Whoever they are, from the smallest charity to the greatest institution, they have a clear idea of their purpose and role, and they understand that good governance is in everyone's interests. It's the duty of board members to remain focused on broad strategic goals while tackling day-to-day issues and meeting their responsibilities. So it's the way of meeting those goals, having those goals in the first place, making sure that the goals are clear and everybody's working towards them. That is really important. And also that process of self-reflection of boards is really important. I think it's very easy for people to be convinced um, of their own rightness sometimes. And also when, you know, when you're on a board, um, as as you have been, you know, you need challenge. You don't need people to pat you on the back and say, well done all the time. And we're doing, you know, we don't need to worry. We're doing a great job. You do need that. Diversity is really important. You need people to question constantly whether what you as the executive think is the right thing to do. And also occasionally you need to act on what other people have said too and not just carry on bulldozing through regardless. So I think signs of good governance in a company is a company that does make changes that may seem uncomfortable for some, but are clearly in the long term best interests of all stakeholders rather than just a few. And other indicators are things like, you know, the level of pay of the executive that's sometimes, you know, if that is egregious, that's sometimes a sign of governance gone wrong. Um, but there are, there are other indicators and, you know, whether or not a company has a clear purpose and seems to be meeting that clear purpose is, is, is another way of telling. We appear to have something like a recession developing in Europe and China, and there's, there's talk of one coming to the US. What has transpired in, in Ukraine has been absolutely awful. People in the United States are losing their minds over $5 gas. They've obviously never traveled uh, in your direction, uh, $5 a gallon, that is, in our, in our pricing metric. But it, it, it has served a little bit like uh, a carbon tax. You know, So even if you didn't care about the environment necessarily, now we have all these other reasons to worry about fossil fuels and get off emit, uh, the um, work on emissions. The, the challenge in these economic times, coming back to it, is that's always a political excuse not to invest in the future because it's going to hurt jobs or create pain in the consumer. What is your view right now? What's going on with uh, economic slowdowns around the world, recessions developing? What does that do 
to the ESG movement from from your perch? Um, well, unfortunately, I don't think it's great for the ESG movement in the very short term because people's priorities shift and we we start to get closer to home. We start to enter personal survival mode because all you can think about really is getting to the end of the month with the money that you've got. We, we haven't had a jobs crisis in the UK yet. I think, you know, when unemployment is a thing, then concerns, wider, broader concerns that, you know, clearly deserve to be um, right at the top of the priority list when we think about our collective well-being, um, suddenly start to take a back seat because people are just trying to get through to the end of the week. And that's, you know, that that's, in a way, I, I, I sort of um, reluctant to admit that I think sustainability is um, a kind of luxury concern. But I think if we are able to think about it, that's a great thing because it means that we're not in that survival mode and we have got ways of coping and getting through to the end of the week uh, because we're able to think about other things, including how we can help save the planet. And as individuals, you know, we have our ISAs and our pensions. At the moment, people are drawing on their savings in the UK to get through because we have incredibly high inflation. And um, so you know, even having savings is is kind of a thought too much for people, let alone what you're actually doing with them and where they're being invested. So I think, you know, it's problematic from that point of view. The other thing, of course, is the impact on some of the valuations of the companies held in funds that have an ESG label has, t- in many cases, taken a hit. So the um, US technology stocks um, have been kind of quite high up in a lot of sustainable funds. And because of inflation, the valuations have taken a bit of a knock. Now that it might be short term, uh, and it really has only been since the beginning of this year that the shine has come off. And, you know, we have a slightly different, slightly more benign outlook for 2023 and 2024. So I don't think in any way that this knock to the appeal of ESG is permanent um, and I think there will be many more knocks to it along the road I I think that you know we're, we're just seeing the first kind of shift of priorities for individual investors um, and also you know the, the fundamentals of the energy market as a result of Russia's invasion of Ukraine um, has been very jarring and has uh, meant that People have seen both reasons to invest in oil and gas from an energy security point of view as paramount, but also clearly over the long term, you can see that it's a a very clear cut case to invest a lot more in renewables. And so we can depend more on our own homegrown renewable energy resources than um, foreign imported oil and gas, which it's less of a problem for you guys, but it's certainly a problem for us and, and Europe. So it has, it's focused minds in in terms of energy investing. And I think that, I mean, I I, I wrote the book, but also I, I am a believer in the, the long-term importance of ESG investing overall. And so I, I see this as a blip and I see the fall away in popularity of ESG and concerns around greenwashing, the jaded, some of the jaded comments coming out of people who have worked in ESG at large asset managers um, and banks, knocking it as a process and saying it's not very effective and saying it's all marketing as, as part of the process too. That's my long-term positive take. <laughs> Thank you. I want to talk a second because we brought up Larry Fink and BlackRock and the fact that so much of the shareholder vote is now concentrated in three very large passive index fund firms. Does shareholder activism, broadly speaking, however you want to talk about it, work in practice? You know, there's a great section here on Richard Wilson's vision for a shareholder voting model, kind of this opt out versus opt in. I don't, does, does it, does it work? There's, you know, there's, when I think of shareholder activism, I also think of the exclusion model the old exclusion model that's that's still around where you know uh, we're we have a couple of college students in the house and, and students are pushing to divest of fossil fuel and I, I've, I've read a lot from people like cliff asness at aqr about the finance 101 impact of selling shares and increasing the cost of capital so it's more expensive for them to invest in in projects my, my cynical take on that is the companies you're talking about are so 
free cash flow positive, uh, their issue isn't raising cheap money. Uh, they're, uh, they, they have plenty of it. But talk about shareholder activism, because this is, again, a book about investing. Uh, I buy a, a mutual fund. I get a proxy to vote for certain issues at the mutual fund. If I buy a stock in Unilever, I'm going to get a proxy to vote for certain issues at Unilever. Uh, where, where does shareholder activism sit in this uh, process of making ESG realize its objectives and its goals? I think it's hugely important, but it's it's not really a, a thing yet. You know, we don't uh, we have um, organized campaign groups. Uh, we have organized platforms that allow you to buy company shares in, in fossil fuels. If you know, if you believe the engagement argument and you think that the best way to agitate for change is to own a stake in that company and make a nuisance of yourself. And um, then you can do that using platforms now. At Interactive Investor, we have shareholder voting for anyone who has shares in individual companies. Shareholder voting is switched on by default. So if you own shares in that company through the platform and there is a vote, we inform you of the vote and you can vote via the platform. That was a relatively, well, it's, it's a new thing for um, us as a business and we introduced it last year. People are using it, but it's not the majority of people who are using it and voting. And I think one of the issues is is to do with transparency um, and information. And very often people hear about a vote, but they don't really know what they would be voting for and why or why that vote is important. They don't have any access to the context. And until there's better access to information for individual shareholders on what the votes mean, then people won't necessarily take that opportunity to vote because it's just it's meaningless to them so I think you know we've got mechanisms in place now that enable people who want to vote to vote the a vote is just a vote as an individual shareholder so there's also uh, stuff around um, how to amplify individual voices so I think there's sort of collective Individuals coming together to form collective action is still really important. So we have a, a campaign group called Share Action in the UK, which uh, gets together and sends people to AGMs and campaigns directly at company AGMs on certain issues and is it does a really good job. So that those kind of organised campaign groups are very effective too. Individual investors do need better access to relevant, timely information before they can vote meaningfully on anything. So I think that's the next step for the shareholder revolution. Um, uh, but, you know, we need we need people to do it. Um, and we're encouraging uh, investors that use the platform all the time um, because it is it's one way that we could we could agitate for change that we're not really fully using yet. And, you know, in this world, a vote, a company vote may be more powerful than a political vote. Who knows? Yeah, and that, that's for sure. And, and I know there's discussions about taking away some power from someone like Larry Fink and BlackRock by making the proxy votes for, say, the S&P 500 index fund flow through to the individuals. But just as you described it, can you imagine individual investors who were trying to stimulate to vote on for a single company or a single fund now having you know 500 company proxies flow through their their inbox i'm just not sure that's practical it's a lot it's a lot for individuals unless they're incredibly motivated on a, on an issue to wade through that i mean i've you know i've had voting instructions through myself several times and uh, i've had to you know dedicate an hour at least to finding out what the vote is whether I should care, um, whether I should vote. It's it's really not easy as things stand. So quite a lot of work needs to be done there. Yes. Yeah. The book we didn't get into the whole rating systems controversy and all the different agencies and and the the differences. The book does have some lists that you share about who scores well and and who has some work left to do. Uh, you talk about companies and uh, asset managers. So let's let's pretend I come to you. I'm I'm 50 years old. I have some retirement money, some non-retirement assets. I brought children into this world. I care very much about the world's future. What are a few pieces of advice you can offer on at least the investing piece of my impact, what I do with my dollars? 
Well, of course, the first thing I should say is I am not qualified to give financial advice I to anybody. Out there You're right. And I don't mean, I'm not either. We're not <laughs> making recommendations, uh, but um, go for it. Well, do you know what? I mean, I think if the specifically for people who are approaching retirement, it's interesting that you bring that up because it's hard to find funds that are going to deliver a cautious, balanced, well-diversified level of income that are that are also going to match your sustainability goals it's easier to find growth stocks and global equities that match sustainability goals and it just is and so that whole area that whole product area of um, sustainable investments that are suitable for people approaching or in retirement is actually a really big gap at you know (laughs) it's even harder now because we're in such difficult times but you know you don't have typically the it is the big energy companies and the fossil fuel companies that pay the big dividends that support the uh retirement income of generations so that's something we need to address and i think that will come as the cleaner technologies mature and increase in scale but we're still waiting for that to happen so uh, if you're interested in legacy however um and something that your grandchildren will be proud of inheriting from you um then you can still uh, afford to invest in higher growth assets because you don't need them for your own income so if it's about what you're leaving behind then positive impact funds would certainly be something that i i would think the next generation and the generation after would feel very pleased that they're family money had been invested in and yeah so it does depend on your own individual goals and whether you're looking at putting uh, money somewhere for your own income it's going to be hard there are a couple of funds there are a couple of funds to look at that offer sustainable income not naming names but there are a few (laughs) um and um uh so yeah so for that part it's harder there's less choice but there's a little bit and and a lot more choice in terms of positive income positive impact, higher growth and funds for legacy giving. So it's about finding the balance between the different pots that you have in retirement. This section I learned a lot from and hadn't thought about, especially when you talk about impact, your dollars having change, not just uh, kind of the exclusionary policy, was selecting banks with which to put your money into that have a methodology, a framework for allocating responsibly. That's a section that I, I would love to direct readers to. Becky, what would someone smarter than me have remembered to ask you before we get off the phone? What else <laughs> would you like to know, or you would like listeners to know about the book before we sign off? Uh, well, I mean, listen, I, I think I think we've covered so many areas. Thank you so much for the great questions. I I just want to remind people that the world isn't perfect. And there are no perfect investments, therefore, either. There is only investments that are trying to do better to varying degrees um, and those that aren't, but maybe pretending to do so. So I just I am in the business really with this book, as well as offering clarity and insight of expectation management of what really is happening in the ESG space and what it really means. Um, Because I think many people come to this area full of high hopes and idealism and find that quickly dashed. Um, and I don't I don't want that to be the case. I want people to retain faith that, that moving moving money into the right places can um, push the world in a better direction. So I think that would be my final message. You know, let's not let perfect be the enemy of the good. Absolutely. And thank you so much for your time, Becky O'Connor. And the book again is the ESG Investing Handbook. I enjoyed it thoroughly. And uh, look forward to talking to you again and, and best of luck. Thank you.